I want to begin this morning by sharing something pretty profound. I'm going to put this in the category of news flash. You're probably going to want to write this down. Here it is. Sometimes life isn't fair. It's kind of in the news flash. Hey, news flash, sometimes life isn't fair. I think we all understand that. And there's a variety of reasons why we might feel that way. But sometimes life isn't fair because the people around us treat us unfairly. Well, that's the question we want to wrestle with this morning. How do we, as the people of God, respond when people treat us unfairly? If you have a Bible, turn with us to 1 Peter chapter 2. If you're visiting with us, we're working our way through 1 Peter. We find ourselves in chapter 2. Peter has told us in verse 9 that we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Why? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So how do we do that? How do we proclaim this life-changing message? We learned last week that God's will for each of us as Christians is that we abstain from fleshly lusts and that we do right, we do good in order to silence the critics who want to slander us. Then he begins in chapter 2 to go through different specific kind of arenas or areas where we are to do good. Last week, we looked at what it means to do good as a citizen in submission to the governing authorities. This week, we pick it up in verse 18, and we talk about what does it mean to do good as slaves. He says, servants be submissive, to your masters with all respect. The word servants there is the Greek word that refers to a household servant. So there's another, another word that deals with maybe a little more intense level of slavery, but servant isn't completely accurate. This is a slave, it's just a household slave. But it does open all kinds of discussion, things we need to talk about to make sense of this passage. Uh, over the years, I've heard some people say that the Bible's kind of an archaic book and it promotes slavery. That would be just a completely ignorant statement on the basis both of not understanding what the Bible says, nor understanding first century Roman culture. One of the things that's critically important is to understand dramatic differences between slavery as we experienced it here in America and slavery in the first century Roman Empire. So first of all, to understand what happened here in America, there's no question that it was sinful, it was offensive, and it totally grieved the heart of God. Contrary to everything we believe as people made in the image of God, all of us equal before God in every way. 
There may have been those in that movement that used the Bible to defend their position, but people have misrepresented the truth of Scripture for 2,000 years. That doesn't mean that's what the Bible actually says. It's also helpful to remind ourselves that the movement to abolish slavery, both in the UK and here in America, was driven by people who understood the truths of Scripture and were passionate about, uh, about uh, acting on what God had to say in the Bible. It's equally true of the civil rights movements in the 60s. It was generated as an outflow of the truth of Scripture. In a first century Roman culture, there were many differences to what uh, maybe we would think of as slavery today. So for starters, it had nothing to do with race. It wasn't uh, race-based at all. Uh, some of the slaves were prisoners of war, which was common in the ancient world. So that would have been some of these Roman slaves but by this time in the Roman Empire, it was more likely to be those who were simply born into slavery because uh, their uh, mothers particularly were in slavery. There were even those in the Roman Empire that willingly sold themselves into slavery. For some people, they, they could actually live better, prosper more by selling themselves into slavery than life apart from that. About one-third of the Roman Empire was made up of slaves. Slaves in the Roman Empire could be educated. Uh, many of them were highly educated, uh, educated more than their masters. Uh, they were doctors. They were teachers. They were businessmen and women. Slaves could own property. They could have families. They could raise children. They were paid a reasonable wage. And it was entirely possible out of that wage to save up enough money to buy your own redemption. Usually by about age 30, slaves had purchased their own redemption and were considered to be free. Most of the slaves generally were treated decently, but slaves were considered to be the property of the master. Therefore, there was always potential for abuse, and that did happen. In the first century Roman Empire, you have to remember, these are Christians, most of them Jewish, that have fled Palestine because of the persecution. They have fled into Asia Minor, so they are strangers and aliens. There is a level of persecution that is about to intensify dramatically under Nero. So to imagine that these Christian slaves could somehow bring about dramatic change in the Roman Empire is really rather ridiculous. It'd be like thinking of a Christian in North Korea today. What is the chance of a Christian or a group of Christians in North Korea protesting the government and living to tell about it? It's that same kind of dynamic. The Bible isn't promoting slavery, but Peter understands that many of these believers are slaves in a very dangerous environment. There's really nothing they can do to change it right now, so they need to be very thoughtful about how they live out their lives for their sake 
and the sake of the other believers around them. Again, you think about a group of Christians in North Korea protesting the government. It's likely that many would be slaughtered because of it. So it isn't just your life, but the lives of many that are at risk. So that's kind of the flavor behind Peter's instruction for how they are to live as slaves in the Roman Empire. So he says, servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect. That word respect is the Greek word from which we get our word phobia. It's a word that means fear. It carries the idea of being genuinely afraid of their masters in the sense that if they displease them, if they make them angry, the potential of what they could do to them is unimaginable. These masters could pretty much do as they please with no recourse. So what he's saying to these slaves is you need to be very thoughtful and aware of the potential damage they can do if you upset them. There was a bit of a problem as these people were coming to faith in Christ and understanding their freedom in Christ, that there was a potential for rebellion. I am now free. I don't have to do that anymore. As a matter of fact, the slander that uh, Peter referred to last week, a lot of the slander had to do with the idea that Christians are rebellious against the government. You think about it, go all the way back to Jerusalem. And as Christians uh, uh, exploded after the resurrection of Christ, tens of thousands, the uh, religious establishment that kind of ran the show We're now accusing them of being rebellious, of not submitting to authority. There was this understanding that the Christians' ultimate allegiance was to God and not to Caesar. Therefore, they were rebellious against Rome. And there was kind of this undercurrent of Christians being troublemakers and being rebellious, which was behind a lot of these comments. That's why Peter said to them, yes, it is true, you are free in Christ, but you're not free to sin. You're not free to rebel. You're free to be a bond slave to Christ. Therefore, last week, be a good citizen. This week, here's how to conduct yourselves as slaves. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable, perverse, crooked, unfair is what that word means. Verse 19, for this finds favor. If for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. When it says this finds favor, that word favor is the Greek word charis, typically translated grace. Basically, the idea is this, that you as a Christian, we as the people of God, are part of the grace story. This amazing story. We once were not a people of God. We once were under condemnation. We were declared to be enemies of God. And now we are the people of God. We're God's own possession. We're God's own children. All that is on the basis of the grace and mercy of God. So the grace story is our story. Therefore, the idea is if uh, you are to respond rightly 
Not only to those that are kind and gentle, everyone responds rightly to them. But how you respond to those that treat you unfairly reflects the reality of the grace story in our own lives. We're conscious, is what Peter says, if you're conscious of what God did for you, then he's asking you to offer the same to those that treat you unfairly. Verse 20, for what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. So basically what he said is it's not just when people are kind and gentle. Everybody responds well to that. And if you are receiving some level of punishment because you have disobeyed, you're not going to impress anyone. Even if you endure it patiently, people are going to say, you had it coming, it's your own fault. What provides the opportunity for a powerful witness is when we respond rightly, when we are treated unfairly. The natural instinct is to react back. So when we, as the people of God, respond with patience, we respond with grace and mercy to being treated unfairly, there's something different about that. There's something distinct. There's something that would cause the critics to back up and wonder what is going on and what makes this person different. So let's be clear. We're talking about first century slaves with no real recourse when they're being treated unfairly. So Peter is instructing them how to respond to rightly represent Christ. We would not understand that to mean that if someone in 21st century America is in some sort of an abusive relationship, it somehow pleases God to just put up with it. That would be a terrible misunderstanding of the text. You are not a first century slave. You do have choices. You do have a recourse. God would not be pleased to see people just endure abusive relationships. So with that understanding, we kind of move it to just relationships that are difficult, that are unfair, ways you're treated at work, ways you're treated in your family, ways you're treated at school, ways you're treated with a coach, that kind of just unfair treatment. Maybe at work there's a lot of politics and you don't play that particular game and you're treated unfairly as a result of it. Whatever it may be, it's kind of that kind of an application for us today, which probably describes all of us uh, in many environments. So how do you respond? We, as the people of God, understand at one time we were sinful and offensive to God, nothing more than sinners and misfits and losers. And yet, rather 
than experiencing the condemnation and rejection we deserve, which would be justice. We have received grace and mercy. We have experienced God's forgiveness. He has made us his people. Our story is the grace story. If that's true, conscious of that's how God has treated us, then what God is saying, I am asking you as witness to the life-changing power of Jesus in you to respond to those who treat you unfairly as I have responded to you in order to proclaim the excellencies of he who has uh, taken us from darkness to his marvelous light. Now stop and think about how dramatically different this is than the culture in which we live. Because we as a culture have decided to be our own gods, we're moving down this pathway of secularism, that everything in life is about me, it's about my little world, it's about what I think is right and wrong. Therefore, we are selfish and self-centered to the core. And because of that, we are keenly aware of everything to us that seems unfair. It seems like we're just offended by everything. Every week, it's something new to be offended by. We are constantly viewing ourselves as victims. We are offended by everything. Now, one of the things that's interesting about this is that we as a culture claim that there are no moral absolutes. So we claim to be relativists, that there are no moral absolutes, that moral, uh, morality is relative. And yet, every week, we're offended by the way people treat us. Now, stop and think about this. If we were true relativists, the best we could do is say, I don't like the way you're treating me, but I can't say that it's right or wrong because there is no such thing as right or wrong. But we don't say that. We say that I have a moral standard and you have violated it, and by the way, you're wrong. You're so wrong, you owe me an apology, which is in essence saying my moral standard applies to you, and you have violated it, therefore you owe me an apology. It's just a reminder that at the end of the day, nobody actually lives that way. Nobody fully buys into this relativism. We all think there's a sense of right and wrong, and when somebody violates that, we don't hesitate to say so. I've been convinced for years that relativism is nothing more than an excuse to do as we please. But nobody actually lives that way. So in a culture that is so selfish, that is so self-centered, that is constantly offended by everything, it seems endless, Think how dramatic it would be if there were a group of people when treated unfairly respond with grace and mercy. We endure with an unusual patience that is so other than 
the rest of the culture, that it causes people to kind of back up and wonder, who are these people? And what makes them respond so differently? How serious is this? Well, verse 21, for you have been called for this purpose. This isn't like a suggestion. This isn't something to just sit around and chat about. The language is very strong. This is actually your calling. How do we declare the excellencies of the one who has transferred us from darkness into light? It's not just with words. It's not by leaving tracks on the table. It is there has to be something in our behavior that reflects the grace story, that something radical has happened within us that makes us different from the rest of the culture. It is a reminder that when we trusted Jesus as Savior, we did not board the love boat. We did not board a cruise ship. This is not your best life now. The most common metaphor in the New Testament for the Christian life are military metaphors. There's a sense that you have a sense of calling, that you are on a mission, that there's a responsibility being the people of God. Of all people on planet Earth, the people who should talk about fairness the least should be us as the people of God. The last thing we want is fairness. Justice meant we were condemned. Justice meant we are subject to God's judgment for our sin. We don't want fairness. Fairness is hopelessness. We wanted grace and mercy. That we might be the people of God. But if that is our story, if we are part of the grace story, part part of our calling necessary to proclaim the excellencies of the one who has saved us is to treat others the way that God has treated us. Giving them just a taste, just a little sampling, a little hint of the grace and mercy that is possible that God offers through the message of the gospel. So he says, for this you have been called, for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. This is what Christ did for you, and he asked you to do the same for him. Then he quotes a number of passages from Isaiah the prophet, who committed no sin, nor was there any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, which means verbally abused, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Now, remember, this is Peter writing these words. This is Peter who was an eyewitness to the horrors of the cross. 
This is Peter who is with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. When the mob came to arrest Jesus, it was Peter that drew his sword and was ready to fight. He cut off Malchus's ear and Jesus stops him. And Jesus looks him in the eye and Jesus says, Peter, we're not going to do that here. Don't you know if I wanted to, I could call down the armies of heaven. But Jesus was choosing to be obedient to the will of the Father in order to provide salvation for us. Now think about that. Jesus said those words directly into the eyes of Peter. Peter is now reflecting that back, that this is what Jesus did for us, willingly choosing to respond this way in order that we might know salvation. Verse 24, and he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. That phrase, bore our sins, is a technical term taken from the temple. It was used to describe the priest carrying the sacrifice to the altar. What Peter is saying is Jesus was in essence carrying himself as the sacrifice that would be placed on the altar, which is the cross, in order to shed his blood to pay for your sin and mine. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. This is what we celebrate this morning in baptism. It is in essence a reenactment of the death burial, and resurrection of Christ. When we choose to be baptized, we are identifying with the fact that we are dead to sin. Through Christ, we died to the bondage of sin, to the penalty of sin, to the condemnation of sin. We died to sin, were buried, and resurrected in the life of Christ, resurrected to righteousness. This is what Jesus has done for us. Verse 25, for you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. We were all lost sheep, is what Isaiah says. But now on the basis of the grace and mercy of God, we have returned to the shepherd and guardian of our souls to understand that the grace story is our story. We were sinners deserving of condemnation. We were lost with no hope. What we deserved, what would be fair, is condemnation and rejection. Instead, we received the grace and mercy of God that we might experience salvation based on the fact that Jesus paid for our sins himself on the cross, that we might experience new life in Christ. If Jesus did that for us, 
if that is our story, then what he's asking is you see that as a pattern to follow in how you respond to people that treat you unfairly in this world. How do we declare the excellencies of he who has called us from darkness into light? It is with words, but it's not with words alone. Words alone will never do it. It's got to be more than just leaving a tract at the table. There has to be something in our behavior that is so radically other than the world in which we live. It causes people to back up and wonder, who are these people? And what is it that has made them so radically different? When we respond to those who treat us unfairly with grace and mercy, it gives people just a taste, just a foreshadowing of what God offers them if they're willing to accept his gift of salvation. This is not a suggestion. This is not something to go home and chat about. It is for this purpose that we have been called as the people of God. Our Father, we celebrate this morning that you are a God of grace and mercy. That is our story. We have no hope apart from your grace and mercy. But God, if that is true, it comes with responsibility. That we as your people might proclaim that message to a dark and hurting world. And Lord, we do that with our words and we do that with our behavior. May we take our calling seriously. That the people around us might come to know Jesus and his salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.